Sometimes you don't have to travel very far at all to learn about the world. You can write a very good history of the world by just looking at the things in your house. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Travel writer Bill Bryson helps us rethink the meaning of home sweet home today on Travel with Rick Steves. Also, whether you're entertaining guests in the afternoon or just feel like indulging in a very British splurge, Britt Lonsdale instructs us on the proper way to enjoy a graceful afternoon tea service in London. And then, of course, you've got to leave some room for pastries and cakes which will follow. So it's not something that's to be hurried. There's an elegant aspect to it. And Nancy Pearl recommends great literature that promises many hours of adventures from the comfort of your own easy chair. And the more you read, the more eyes you see through, the more experiences that you share with other people. Exactly like travel. Adventures that start from home are just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. The inspiration for your next trip can start on the shelf of your local library. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, rock star librarian Nancy Pearl recommends some of her favorite titles for experiencing vicarious adventures all around the world. We'll also take time for an elegant afternoon tea as Britt Lonsdale gently walks us through what you can expect and what's expected of you at a stylish London tea room. Let's start with a closer look at home with travel writer Bill Bryson. In his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life, Bill discovers room by room what his 1851 parsonage in small-town England can teach us about the comforts of home that we take for granted. Bill, thanks for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. So let's get right to that question. Room and board. I mean, it's room is obvious. What's board all about? Well, I'd always wondered that myself. And well, it turns out that in medieval times, particularly in humble dwellings, the the dining table was not a table itself, but it was just a board that hung on the wall. Ah. Uh, and at mealtimes, the family would get it down, and people, members of the household would sit around, and they would balance the board on their knees and eat off that. And over time, the term board came to signify not just the dining surface, but the meal itself. And that's where we get the term room and board. Uh, that's, that's where the board comes from. That's where boarders come from and boarding house and, and all those other terms. And even the expression above board indicates somebody, an honest person whose hands are visible at all times above board. You can learn so much by looking at houses in in your travels. I've picked up a a notion that they would prepare a meal on a board in the old castles and manor houses and so on, and then walk the prepared meal into the dining room and set it down in front of the diners. Is that that what you learned? Certainly, board was originally a, a much more basic sort of thing. Almost all household furniture was extremely basic. If you just look at a word like cupboard, I mean, the word cupboard is obviously cupboard. And we think of cupboard as a kind of cabinet that ah. probably has a, a lot of you know, very nice carpentry involved in it. But originally, a cupboard was, was really just a board on which cups were stood. It was a very simple piece of furnishings. And even originally, well, sort of the fundamental of furniture is mobility, right? The French word for furniture is, if I understand correctly, mobile. Yes, and same with Italian and I, I think Spanish as well. The Romance languages were based on mobile, mobility, because in early days it was uh, wealthier households. The people of the sort of dominant class uh, tend to have large households and they moved around a lot. And so somebody might have you know, lots and lots of land all over the place or be often various different kinds of campaigns. And so such furniture as they had, they wanted it to be mobile and to be able to move it around. And the whole idea of having the kind of fixed and elegant furniture that we think of now was really a much later manifestation. Well, that's related to the concept of room fit for a king, I believe. And uh, to be an effective king in the Middle Ages, you had to be on the road almost all the time. And noble people would have a room fit for a king, and the king would be more likely to stay with them when they were in that town. That's absolutely the case. But through much of the Middle Ages, even the very top of the social heap um, in terms of what they had, tended to be very basic. I mean, something like, as simple as a chair. A chair is a, is a fairly modern device. Um, and again, until about the time in the 14th century, a, a chair was a privileged thing to sit on, which is why we still have, you know, chairman of the board and oh, why yeah. someone who runs a meeting chairs it. The person who was running the meeting, the most important person in the room, was the one person who got the chair. You write in your book that uh, houses are not a refuge of history. It's, it's where history ends up. And this is a good example of that, isn't it? Well, when we study history in school, the way we're normally taught history, it's all about grand things happening on the world stage. It's about wars and big political events and, and all of that kind of thing. 
But in fact, most of what motivates people in the wider world is to get things at home. So whatever happens in history, whatever is discovered or fought over, whatever foods are found or spices are found or new materials, fabrics and so on are found and discovered, they're brought back to one's country and they end up in the home. And so you can write a very good history of the world by just looking at the things in your house. And if you look at things like furniture or fabrics or foods, you can actually write a history of the world, a very good history of the world from that perspective. But those are the things that tend not to be featured very much in normal conventional history books. In that regard, let's talk about the, the bathroom. What does that teach us about hygiene? Your house is 1851. You're living in it a century and a half later. Well, the one thing I would have noticed in 1851 was the concept of modern hygiene was really just getting going then. This was about the time that the flushing toilet was invented, or at least the first modern practical flushing toilet was invented. Before that, of course, people had to go uh, into privies outdoors or, you know, into chamber pots and that kind of thing. So did the vicar did the vicar in your house in 1851, did he have a sit-down flush toilet inside or did he go outside? Well, it's not quite possible to tell what he had exactly. We do have the original blueprint of the house and on the staircase, on the landing, halfway between the downstairs and upstairs, the original blueprints show a little room that's marked as uh, WC water closet, which would indicate that that was a room where he was the person in the house was expected to go to do his private business, so to speak. But whether that incorporated a flushing toilet or not isn't possible to say. And in any case, that room seems not to have been built at that time. The rooms that we have as bathrooms in the house now, one of them originally was a dressing room and another one was a, was a bedroom. So we have like a, a very big bathroom it was often the case with, with 19th century homes in Britain because it was uh, it's too big to be a bathroom because originally it was actually a bedroom. We're talking about your book At Home, A Short History of Private Life, but that reminds me of uh, Neither Here Nor There when you talked about your backpacking trip in the 70s. I remember back in the 70s, cheap hotels in Paris had a landing halfway up the stairs, and that was where the toilet was. Well, it's, I guess. I mean, I, I'm not an architect, but uh, there must have been some practical consideration there. Very often, the thing you have to bear in mind is that because Houses are older than the bathrooms within them, very, very often. When the bathrooms came along, when people started wanting this little space for privacy, they had to put them wherever they could kind of fit them in. That could be retrofitted. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Bill Bryson, and Bill's new book is At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, I was fascinated by how the arrangement of chairs would change over time and how that changed social interaction. I mean, one of the things that would surprise you if you went to, let's say, uh, Monticello, Thomas Jefferson's house, or any other house of that period, if you went there at the time that he was alive, you'd find that by day, almost all the furniture in the living rooms was pushed back against the wall, and that the middle of the room was empty, rather like a waiting room. And the reason for that was because the rooms were very dark. When you were crossing these rooms with a single candle, you'd negotiate your way around a lot of furniture because you would be constantly cracking your shins and, <laughs> and falling over. Uh, houses were very, very dark at night, and so it, the safe way of making them safe was, was to try and get the furniture as much out of the way as possible. And the, the relic we have of that is that lots and lots of the furniture we have even now is meant to be pushed up against a wall and uh, on a chest of drawers. The back of a chest of drawers, so the back of a wardrobe, is going to be very basic. It's not normally hmm. finished in good wood. It was the same in Jefferson's day. The back of chairs would have been very basic. It wouldn't have been finished in the good cloth that was visible on the front of the chairs because most of the time you weren't going to be seeing it. You know, I've always thought English have strange taste in carpets, at least from going to cheap B&Bs over the decades. What kind of floor coverings did they have back in the middle of the 19th century? It depends very much on what class you come from. If you could afford it, you had, you know, very fine Axminster wool carpets. But a lot of people couldn't afford that. And particularly in, in America, you had not only the problem that there wasn't anything produced locally, but it cost a lot of money to import these things. And so people like Washington and Jefferson and other people of that class, they often had to have much more basic coverings on their floors simply because they couldn't afford to import everything. There's a real shortage of materials right throughout the whole of the colonial period in America. It would be too much to say that frustrations over consumer goods was what led to the American Revolution, but it was actually part of the overall frustration with Britain was not just a political frustration, but it was, a, it was a frustration, the fact that we weren't allowed to have things as cheaply and as readily as people back in Britain were. It's that quest for a comfortable life that you learn when you study your home. I'm Rick Steves. Yeah. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Bill Bryson, his book, At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, in your study, you must have gotten kind of close to the vicar, Thomas Marsham, right? He designed the place, actually? He used an architect, so uh, he didn't design it, but... 
Probably. I mean, as with most people who build their own homes, I'm sure he had a lot of input into how things went. And what's interesting in our house was that we have the original blueprints, and they show more or less the houses we've got it now, but there were a lot of very significant things changed between the houses designed and the houses built. So presumably, the Reverend Marsham was actively engaged in making adjustments as the building went up. Now, as you toured your own home, you must have had a few moments where you were frustrated by not understanding this or that. If you could have uh, Vicar Marsham right now and take him to a corner of your house, what, what, would, what would you ask him? Well, the one thing that's the very strangest thing in the whole house is that was kind of my starting point for the book was that I went up in the attic of the house, and in most British homes, the attic is really quite inaccessible. It's not like a space that you would normally go up to. And I had to go up there to, to look for the source of a leak not long after we moved into the house. I went up there and discovered there was a door in the wall that went out onto a space, on the roof space, a kind of very small flat area on the roof space. But it was a very good door. I mean, it was a proper door that leads out onto a, a effectively useless small space on the roof. And I would love to know what they were thinking when they built this door in the wall to go into the outside of the house in a part of the house that nobody would ever normally get to. Now, when I read that, I just thought that's where the man of the house would go to survey his domain. Don't you think that? Well, it's, it's a very effective way of surveying the domain, but in order to get up there, uh, you really, right. yeah, you really have to do some kind of gymnastics because <laughs> there's, no, there's no ladder or steps or anything that takes you up into the attic. You have to get out a very big step ladder. I mean, these ceilings in the 19th century house are high, so you have to get out a really big step ladder and go, you know, go right to the top of it and haul yourself through a hatch in the ceiling yeah. and then sort of clamber your way through an attic and and go out this door. So by the time you get out there to survey your estate, you're going to be covered in cobwebs and pretty breathless. You're not much of a gentleman at that point. You know, when we write travel books, I think our hope is that people will um, enrich their lives by experiencing things, you know, from other cultures. Is there one aspect of your study of your mid-19th century English stately home that helps you enjoy your home more today and that we might all benefit from to enjoy our lives today from what you learned back in the days of Vicar Marsham? Well, I think that probably the, the basic thing, the most fundamental thing is just how comfortable we are, how lucky we are. Just think of something like music. In his day, if he loved Beethoven, he would probably, in his whole life, he'd probably only be able to hear a particular Beethoven concerto once or twice or you know, a couple of times in his whole life, we can get a CD or some other kind of recorded music and listen to it over and over again. And you can multiply that through every aspect of your life. We have comfort and luxury beyond the imagining of people only a couple of generations ago. And yet we take it all for granted. We really ought to stop from time to time and just reflect about the fact how lucky we are to be alive now. It's a beautiful thought. Bill Bryson's latest book is At Home, A Short History of Private Life. Bill, thanks for joining us, and best wishes with your your travels and your writing and and this great book. Thank you very much, Rick. It's been my pleasure. Next, we're off to London for a proper English afternoon tea. And then, Nancy Pearl provides the inspiration for literary adventures that take you to faraway worlds. By phone, we're at 877-333-RICK, and our email is radio at ricksteves.com. It's travel with Rick Steves. One of the fun things about travel is getting acquainted with a country's culture and even its little rivalries. Scottish tour guide Anne Doig lets us in on an old saying that does reinforce some of the stereotypes inside the British Isles, but it does it with a gentle sense of humor. 
This little poem illustrates our humour, I guess, but it starts with, first you have the Welsh who prey on their knees and on their neighbours. Then you have the Irish who don't know what they want, but they'll fight you for it anyway. Then you have the Scots who keep the Sabbath and everything else they can get their hands on. And then you have the English who are a self-made race, which absolves almighty God of a great deal of responsibility. It's so important in our travels that we become kind of a cultural chameleon. And maybe maybe you don't drink a lot of tea, but boy, when you're in England, it makes a lot of sense to have a spot of tea. A spot of tea feels just right for me when I'm in England, even though I don't think about it much on this side of the Atlantic. We're going to learn today about the formal teas of England, and we're joined by a blue badge guide from London, Britt Lonsdale. Britt, thanks for joining us. Oh, it's a pleasure. Now, Britt, you've spent years taking Americans around London as a tour guide. I find people are very interested in these teas. What can we learn about teas to understand that part of English culture? Afternoon tea for English people is just such an automatic ritual that uh, we never really think too much about it. We think that afternoon tea really started. One of the people given credit for it is the Duchess Anna Maria, who was the seventh Duke of Bedford's wife, and she found the distance between lunch and between dinner a little too far and so she got little sandwiches cake and a pot of tea served to her and it's thought that she was the person who really started it off although various other claimants uh, are there if you read about it but it's just a wonderful little ceremony and it's evolved over the years and it's become something that uh, you just tend to enjoy to make a bit of a fuss of yourself over. You know, it's nice to treat yourself to an afternoon tea and it's so delicious. But I do warn you that it bypasses the alimentary canal and settles <laughs> immediately on your hips and thighs. <laughs> you could call this Victorian then, couldn't you? Is it 19th century? Yes, I think. I mean, tea, of course, has been a rage for, for much longer than that, really. But uh, it's thought that the real afternoon tea as we know it today probably evolved during that time. And originally it would be for people with a lot of time on their hands as opposed to the working class? or Well, or... I would imagine so, although I think lots of people did like to try and, you know, say that they took tea, certainly. But nowadays I think everybody really enjoys a good afternoon tea. But it's still not for people on a limited budget because if you go for a really posh afternoon tea at somewhere like the Langham Hotel or the Ritz or the Landmark or Fortnum and Masons, you're going to have not much change left from about 40 pounds. That's a lot of money. 40 pounds. So that, that would be how many dollars? Gosh, what, $70? $60? $60, so, yeah, 70 Yes, at today's rates. I know. Last time I was in London, I learned that you can split a tea. Is that is that actually kosher if two people want to order a $60 tea? Split it? Well, you and I did at the Wolseley, I seem to remember, and we were treated very nicely there and allowed to do that. Yeah. Um, if you were to go to somewhere like the, you know, the Ritz or the Langham. That would be Langham, frowned Fortnum, on there, I suppose. Well, I'm not sure. I think you could probably get round it. I mean, probably you could what probably you could order do. a cup of tea, one person, and the and the whole thing. I together. should imagine you could because it's yeah. very very filling, and you get an awful lot of food. So, oh yeah, um, filled us both up. <laughs> it certainly did. That's so lovely. Hey, Britt, uh, there's a little confusion among uh, travelers between the terminology. You hear about cream tea, afternoon tea, high tea. What are the differences there? Well. A cream tea and afternoon tea tend to be a fairly similar sort of thing, really, in my view. High tea tends to be something sort of like an early tea that you would give um, children, perhaps when they came in from school, something with a little more substance to it, where you might have something called Welsh rarebit, or you might have, yeah. um, you know, that wonderful thing that we serve beans on toast with it, or something like that. It's the sort of thing that I would give to my children if they came in and were oh, starving okay. and couldn't wait for dinner. So a high tea is more of a meal, then? Yes, a lot of uh, visitors refer to afternoon tea as high tea, and I guess we don't really correct them anymore, not that we really mind. <laughs> okay, but that's very good to know, because I think what we're thinking about is the afternoon tea, and that's with all the ritual, and that's where you'd go to the fancy tea room in a, in a fancy hotel or something like this. It is, really. And the sort of thing that you'll be served, you'll be served little sandwiches, very dainty sandwiches with the crust cut off the bread, um, the cucumber sandwiches, sometimes smoked salmon. You will have egg and cress sandwiches. And then you'll have scones. There's great debate about whether you pronounce it scone or scone. The majority of people pronounce it scone, but quite a number pronounce it scone. It, it varies. But this is like a little cake, often with 
currants in or sultanas or raisins. It depends. They're served in very different ways, but generally that's how they are. And you cut them in half and put strawberry jam on either side and Mm. then a great big spoonful of clotted cream. Clotted cream is about, I think it's probably a minimum of 55% fat, which uh, to you in the US would probably qualify as butter. Uh, it's very, very rich, and it's quite delicious. You're just getting me all excited here, Britt. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yes, I, I got to admit. Now, when I like, what I like to do is those beautiful scones, or scones, I slice them very thinly so that I can have almost like a loaf of bread, and then I can put the clotted cream and the, and the jam on each little thin layer. Is that kosher? <laughs> well, um, you know, it depends. I think you can do pretty much what you want. But um, the way I tend to do it is cut them in half and then put the strawberry jam and then a dollop of cream on the middle. And I okay. keep two halves separate um, and eat them just like that. You sort of eat them in one half. And then, of course, you've got to leave some room for pastries and cakes which will follow. So it's not something that's to be hurried. There's an elegant aspect to it and you're expected to take your time over it. If I went for afternoon tea at three o'clock, I certainly wouldn't expect to leave much before about five or 5.30 and I probably wouldn't eat much that evening either. I bet not. So help us envision this. You get this uh, three-tiered silver tray, don't you? You do. Very often it's presented like that. Take us through that from the bottom to the top. Well, from the bottom, very often you will have the sandwiches, and they'll be finger sandwiches. So if you imagine a slice of bread cut into probably about six segments, sometimes they'll be in triangles. Without the crust? Oh, without the crust, yes, the crust. uh, I remember reading somewhere um, somebody saying, uh, yes, if you didn't slice off the crust, what on earth would you give to the poor? Which I thought was very snobby. But you cut them and you make them as delicate and dainty as possible. And then on the next tier up, you've got scones. And then on the final tier, you've got very tiny little cakes. Oh, this sounds so good. I'm speaking with Britt Lonsdale, and Britt is a blue badge guide. She's helped me for years in London as I work on my guidebook there. And we'll have Britt's contact information on our website at the radio corner at ricksteves.com. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Cheryl's on the phone in Portland, Oregon. Cheryl, thanks for your call. Hi, how are you? Great. Um, I was calling with a comment for afternoon tea, a place I wanted to recommend, which is the Dorchester Hotel. I've been there twice for afternoon tea and really enjoyed it. Great food, great ambiance, and a very relaxing atmosphere. The Dorchester? Mm Mm-hmm. Absolutely lovely, and I would agree completely. It's a marvelous hotel, and it does a very good afternoon tea. Sure. When you were having the tea, did you have the uh, the three-tiered silver setting? Yeah. Well, actually, they brought the platter sandwiches, which you could select from, um, and that was my downfall. <laughs> ate too many of those, but then later on, they brought the three-tiered with the scones and a couple of other items with the clotted cream and the jam, and then later, they brought the platter of desserts, which you could select from. <laughs> uh-huh. So, yeah, it was they quite a They do do food. that sometimes. <laughs> now, Cheryl, were you surrounded by what seemed like, you know, uppity, uh, aristocratic English people? Or was it something that a tourist could feel comfortable in? Um, I would definitely say a tourist could feel comfortable in it. They do have a dress code. But if you have slacks and a nice shirt or, you know, a nice coat or something like that, you would definitely fit right in. And I never felt at all uncomfortable or that it was stuffy. The the staff at the hotel, they were great. It just made the whole experience great. Now, one thing I learned when I was having my tea is that the actual selection of tea is important, too. Britt, what can you tell us about the variety of teas you might be able to choose from? Well, there's a huge variety, but the most important thing to remember, I think, is that we always have it with milk. Sometimes I've noticed when I've gone with groups of people or or individuals, they don't expect to have milk in their tea, but most of us will have milk automatically, and I know that you don't. Um, The sort of teas that will be served for afternoon tea will be things like Darjeeling. A lot of us, me particularly, like a tea called Earl Grey. Apparently the Queen's very fond of Lapsang Souchong. But you can have anything, really, for afternoon tea. And you certainly won't have, um, you know, fruit teas or anything like that. It'll always be Indian or uh, China tea. That sort of thing will be served. And I think something like Darjeeling is usually a light sort of pleasant tea. Often places do their own afternoon tea blends, things that they feel are suitable. Certainly at the end of it, you'll have drunk so much that you will almost undoubtedly have a massive caffeine and sugar rush. (laughs) So, Cheryl, on your next visit to London, what are your tea plans? Um, I would definitely go back to the Dorchester. It was, you know, I've 
thought about trying different places, but the experience there was so great. It's just you, you go with what you know, and since it was a enjoyable experience, I would definitely go there again. Sounds good. Cheryl from Portland, thanks for the call. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about afternoon tea, the ritual of a fancy break in the afternoon with Britt Lonsdale, who's a blue badge guide in London. And Diana in Santa Fe emails us, and she writes, When in London, I had high tea at Brown's Hotel, at the Ritz, and at the Stafford Hotel. They're all great and fairly pricey. What are some of the less traditional places that serve fine afternoon teas? Britt, uh, do you know about the high tea at Brown's Hotel, at the Ritz, at the Stafford? Yes, I do, actually, and I've been to all of them. Um, In fact, if you look at my figure, you can tell that. (laughs) But, uh, you know, I'm something of a great enjoyer of afternoon tea. But, um, you know, they vary tremendously in terms of the sort of ambiance or atmosphere you want because some places will have music, sometimes they'll have a piano player, sometimes they'll have a little chamber orchestra. So you can go very grand and glam or you can go very low-key, and an awful lot of little places will do afternoon tea. Um, so it really rather depends what sort of experience you want. You can go into many cafes in London, very simple little cafes, and they will give you a scone with jam and cream. Cheaper places, perhaps, and perfectly nice, just behind Kensington Palace, you have the Orangery, and they will do an afternoon tea where you can just have um, jam, scone, and cream, and a cup of tea, and it'll be much less expensive than, you know, the big £40 layout for something a little more glamorous. Those are the sort of places. Or else you could go, uh, you know, into any little hotel and and not have the the full Monty, as we say, and uh, just have a scone and cream. You know, there's plenty of places where you could find this. So I suppose you can talk to the people in your hotel, you can look at your guidebook, or... If you hire a private guide, the guides will all have experiences like you for the place to go for a tea, depending on your budget and, and how glamorous you want to go. Basically, the teas are in the afternoon. What, what is the typical time for tea? Well, usually what we would think would be about 3 o'clock. Having said that, such is the popularity of afternoon tea, you will find a lot of places... Well, I hesitate to say cashing in on it because obviously they're meeting a demand, but you will find places that will start doing it very early. For example, the Ritz Hotel, they serve it from 11.30 in the morning, then at 1.30, then at 3.30, then at 5.30, and then at 7.30. They have various Hmm. sittings. So that's, uh, you know, really quite a lot of afternoon tea. But um, the Langham Hotel that recently won an award for their afternoon tea, they serve it between two and six. It's almost always best to have a reservation, however, because they do get popular. It's the sort of place where you would take somebody to celebrate something, you know, or if you've got visitors in town. I had some Indian friends in town and took them to Fortnum and Mason's a little while ago, and they absolutely loved it. Although they were wearing jeans, which they thought, of course, was terribly fashionable and we had to be tucked away in the corner because there is quite a strict dress code and jeans, whilst to them would have seemed the height of fashion, uh, to the people in Fortnum and Masons was, you know, not the correct dress. So you may get in with casual dress, but you're likely to be tucked away in a corner. Quite probably. Yeah. Last time you were enjoying a tea with one of your friends in London, what was a, a faux pas you, you recognized from Americans that were there in the room? Or what, what is something that you would warn us about? Um, What I would say would be go with the flow and go with the experience. Don't go to afternoon tea and say, oh, no, I don't drink tea, (laughs) because why are you there if you haven't uh, decided that you're going to have a cup of tea? Try it with milk, you know, and just see the way you do it. One of the things that is so incredibly endearing, I find, about um, a lot of the American people I go around with is how sweetly they ask, how is the right way to do it? Um, should I be doing it like this? Should I be doing it like that? And I find that completely charming and it makes me take them to my hearts because there really isn't a completely right way or you will get some very stuffy English people or say, oh no, milk in first or, you know, no, 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 you must do your scone this way. But to be honest, I don't think it really matters as long as you love the experience and, you know, just lap up the atmosphere. Probably make a point to take your time. You don't want to rush a tea. Definitely not. And anyway, you can't because if you start, you know, eating it all madly, you'll, you'll be so full, you, you just won't be able to manage the rest of it. So take it very, very gently. A question about the tea itself. What's the thought between loose tea and tea that comes in a bag? Well, I don't think in most of the really good afternoon tea places you will find tea in tea bags. You'll find loose tea, 
Um, that's really perceived as being the classiest way to serve it. Right. And you will get a little strainer, you know, so you'll strain it into your cup. That sometimes mm -hmm. comes as a bit of a surprise to people because they're not used to doing that. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Britt Lonsdale, who's a blue badge guide in London. Britt, let's close it off by just taking us to your favorite place for afternoon tea in London and paint a little picture. Well, one of my favorite places, and it's certainly not the most glamorous place, is Fortnum and Mason's. It's a big store on Piccadilly, and when you go in at street level, there are lots of lovely teas for sale. Um, it's just really beautiful inside, and I love going upstairs to the Georgian restaurant on the fourth floor, which they lay out for afternoon tea. There are lovely, comfortable sofas, so comfortable that I went there with my children once a while back, and one of my boys fell asleep. That's how comfortable it was. And there's a man playing the piano, playing all sorts of popular tunes. He'll play requests. It's all very refined and very sort of um, peaceful. You're up above the roar of the traffic and uh, you're served so nicely. Proper napkins, not paper napkins or anything like that. Lovely little strainer for the loose leaf tea that's uh, brought to you in a lovely teapot, of course. Everything is so nicely done. The devil is always in the detail, and for me, the detail at Fortnum and Mason's is perfect. And especially, of course, the fact that the sandwiches, the scones, the strawberry jam, the clotted cream, and the little pastries are just so delicious. That's my favorite. Britt Lonsdale, hearing you talk just makes me want to raise my pinky and have a delightful <laughs> time at Fortnum and Mason's or some great place like that. Thank you so much well, for joining go. us. Okay, next time we're in London. It's a pleasure. It's afternoon tea. Britt Lonsdale, thanks a lot. <laughs> Thank you. Nibbling their sandwiches, sipping on their tea. There sits a pair as perfect as you'd ever care to see. He's a piece of nature's artwork No more finely drawn than she As they're sipping on their sandwiches And nibbling their tea See how he smiles See how she beams as he offers her the tin of chocolate creams. Up next, literary maven Nancy Pearl suggests her favorite books and authors to stir up the wanderlust in any armchair traveler. And you can share your own recommendations for your favorite literature that takes you to other times and exotic places. Look for the Share Feedback link in the radio section of ricksteves.com. funny, I travel a lot and don't read a lot of books, and I'm joined by somebody who reads a lot and doesn't do a lot of travel, and we're both enthusiasts about the world, and armchair travel is the specialty of Nancy Pearl. I guess if America has what you might call a rock star librarian, it's Nancy. She's written the very, very popular Book Lust series. It's sold over 200,000 copies. She's a regular commentator on NPR's Morning Edition. She's got master's degrees in library science and history, and her new book is Book Lust to Go all about travel books. Nancy, thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you for having me on the show. Isn't that interesting that you're just so enthusiastic about travel books and they're kind of a blessing because you don't have to get on an airplane. I travel a lot for work. So, you know, I've been to places like Auckland and Tallinn, Estonia, and all around Estonia actually it was a wonderful trip. But it's always been for work. Yeah. And yeah. so pleasure travel has always been found within the pages of a book. So talk about traveling without leaving home via wonderful books. It's the best way to do it. I, You know, I did a program at the Mid-Manhattan Library in New York a few weeks ago, and at the end of the program, where I talked about not being a traveler and yet feeling that I'm very qualified to write a book called Book Lusto because of all the books I've read, a man in the front row said, I thought you'd bring slides to show all the places. And I said, Oh, my goodness, I'm so sorry, but I've never been to any of these places. <laughs> you know, it just occurred to me, I had a similar experience with 
Al Stewart, you know, the guy that, uh, You're the Cat, you know, the pop singer? Yes. And I had dinner with him, and I've just loved his books because he's this traveling historian and everything, and I listen to his lyrics, and I love his lyrics, and I just, I can picture him in the, in the market in Marrakesh writing these things down. So I got together and asked him, so what was it like? How did he write? And he says, I've never traveled to any of these places. <laughs> I, I just read books. He loves books, and he yes. travels. Yes. I, I think that reading... And reading about different countries. I'm a librarian, and one of the things, one of the questions we always got was, I'm going to Venice. What can I read? I don't really want a travel guide necessarily. I have that. But what can I read that will give me a sense of the there-ness of the place? I mean, how can you go to Venice and not read the Donna Leone mysteries? And so, I mean, they're fabulous. That's how I first learned what Prosecco was, because the main character, Guido Brunetti, he drinks Prosecco. He drinks Grappa. There's even a new book out of his recipes. And I thought, I, I don't know if I'll ever go to Venice, but I've been there. You've been there, yeah. Well, I mean, somebody could say, I'm not going to Venice. What book should I read? Yes, also? absolutely. And absolutely. You, you, can, you can be there. Well, for me, the planning stage of a trip, because I'm all about practical travel tips for people who are actually going to go through all the headaches yes. of going there, the practical part of it, or, or the, the planning part of it, can sort of be an extension of the travel experience. You're sort of psychologically and mentally there. You're getting background material, so when you do get there, it's much more vivid and right. magic. And and these are the kind of people you and librarians all over the country are helping out right. when we give that little insight. Yes. But see, it's all that traveling, that getting ready beforehand, just what you were talking about, that you find is an extension of the travel. It's that that makes me, I immediately, as soon as you started talking, my stomach got nervous. Yeah. <laughs> I thought, I can't, I, I no. So nope. maybe if you do that preparation thing well <laughs> enough, you don't have to do the trip. Know, right. And that's where Nancy Pearl comes in with her book, Lust to Go. Nancy, can a book give you culture shock? I Yes. Um, there's a new book about North Korea by a woman named Barbara Demick called No Ordinary Lives. I think that's what it's called. And she talks about life in North Korea. She interviewed five people who had escaped from North Korea over the Tumen River and come to China, and she interviewed them in China. And they talked about what life was like in North Korea. I mean, that was the most kind of radical kind of culture shock. So you were caught up in that in that hellish kind of situation. Yes, yes. Just by and reading the book. Thankfully, yes. you didn't have to go there right. to, to learn that. Yeah, and most of us will never get to go to right. North Korea, but yeah. Gus Lee wrote a wonderful mystery set in North Korea. I, I mean, there's just so much that's... Well, there's um, a society that's essentially closed to is. tourists, but it's worth traveling to. Via books. Yes. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves, and we're enjoying armchair travel with uh, the the queen of, of armchair travel, and that would be the librarian Nancy Pearl. And Nancy's new book is called Book Lust to Go. I mean, you've written several book lust right. books, and this one is featuring travel books. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Gail's on the phone in Albany, Oregon. Hey, Gail, thanks for your call. Um, thank you for taking my call. Um, yes, I'm excited to get a chance to talk to Nancy as uh, we rushed out and got her book um, because that's exactly what I'm always looking for is some good recommendations of books to read uh, before I travel or after I travel someplace. And I, want, I don't want a travel log. I don't want a, a guidebook. I want a good fiction uh-huh. book that brings a place to life. And so um, we have been using your book now to... Uh, find some books for our next trip. Where are you going? Um, oh, our next trip uh, will be back to Brazil where my son lives, and so I'm, I'm looking for some ideas. Some, some areas you don't have covered as well as, right. as others. Yeah. Right. There's a, like a page count limit and a word count limit. Oh, okay. <laughs> and also, but you know what book I would recommend about South America is a book called The Saddest Pleasure by Moritz Thompson. T-H-O-M-S-E-N. And he's mentioned it. Um, that book is in Book Lust to Go. Okay. He joined the first class of Peace Corps volunteers, but he was older than the others. He was in his late 30s. When he left the Peace Corps, he bought a farm in Ecuador. And then as he got older, his health got not quite as um, good as it was. And so he gave up his farm, and he took one last trip around South America. Oh. And the title, The Saddest Pleasure, comes from something that Graham Greene, um, no slouch at travel himself, once uh-huh. wrote, which is that travel is the saddest pleasure. And I would love to interview Rick to see what he thinks of that <laughs> sentence. 
Travel is the saddest pleasure, because Thomas Jefferson wrote, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. Yeah. Oh. And I think there's a lot to that, and we could do a whole interview on yes. that. Yes. Yeah, interesting. Mm-hmm. All right. Yeah, so I'm, I'm just sort of uh, encouraging you to, to keep reading and helping the rest of us uh, find those books that bring a place alive. I did send in two ideas that, I, that I've read. Uh, one is The Colony of Unrequited... Love, uh, I think. Yes. Wayne Johnston, did uh-huh. you see that one? I included that one in Book Lust, or more oh, Book Lust, in okay. one of the earlier books. And and okay. actually, when I was writing Book Lust to go, I d- decided, because I could have written this book just taking armchair travel and history oh, okay. and things like that from the earlier books, but I didn't think that would be fair. So okay. so I did not repeat myself. But The okay. Colony of Unrequited Love is a fabulous book about Newfoundland. Yeah, and the other one is called Easter Island, a novel which is, has a modern-day researcher and somebody from, you know, 100 years ago, and they go back and forth between the two, and that's another uh-huh. really good book that I liked a lot. All right. Hey, Gail in Albany, okay. Oregon, thanks for your call. Thank you. And, Thanks, Gail. And uh, happy armchair travel. All right. Bye-bye. <laughs> I was going to ask you about that, Nancy. Um, of course, you, you wrote Book Lust and then more Book Lust, right? And <laughs> right. you probably just accidentally had a lot of travel books that made the cut for that. And then you had to decide those would be probably the books that came to mind first right. as the best travel books. Yes. So would you actually do Book Lust to go without those yes. ones that made the first that cut? that was the hardest part. And the most interesting part, Book Lust and more Book Lust were books that that pretty much I had read and loved. Mm-hmm. I like to joke and say 3,000 of my all-time favorite books, <laughs> but they really are. But for Book Lust to Go, I spent a lot of time wandering through libraries and bookstores, read travel essays, read histories. I wanted accessible books, whether or not the places were common armchair travel places. Like somebody, somebody said, why did you do Albania? Who would go to Albania for a mm. trip? And I said, well, I had to do Albania. One of my all-time favorite books is The Unexpected Mrs. Polifax. And she volunteers to be a spy. And by accident, she is sent to Albania or taken to Albania. Well, that's a beautiful thing about this list. It doesn't matter what the visa requirements are, that's how right. far you have to travel there. It's all accessible. It it's is. Just, within the 268 pages that your publisher gave you yes. for this project. The 65,000 words, <laughs> for better or worse, there they are. Well, sometimes less is more, I guess, in yes. book publishing, so you had to uh, limit it to that. You know, it occurs to me as a traveler and, and a citizen of, of, of this country that fear is in a lot of people's minds lately. There's a lot of fear rattling around in our society. I really feel like fear is for people who don't get out very much. And one reason I'm trying to inspire people to travel is because I think you realize, hey, the flip side of fear is understanding. Mm-hmm. Uh, if all you do is, you know, watch hysterical, if it bleeds, it leads news, right. it's a scary world. Right. How does reading uh, I think work reading that? is exactly the same. I'm, I'm struck by that similarity because I think it's through reading that you understand a larger portion of the world than where you are. And the more you read, the more eyes you see through, the more experiences that you share with other people, exactly like travel. It's because of that that armchair travel, that novels set in different places, that we're seeing so many mysteries being translated now coming from other countries. I think they bring you the same overcoming of yourself. In fact, there's a travel writer named Michael Mewshaw whose new book is called Between Terror and Tourism. Isn't that great? It's a collection of his experiences. What's what's the author in the name of the book? The author is Michael Mewshaw, Uh M-E-W-S-H-A-W, and the book is called Between Terror and Tourism. Wow, that sounds fascinating. It is. It is. And he gets himself into some very hot spots. Yeah. So reading doesn't replace the experience. It can augment the experience or give you experiences you couldn't have otherwise. When it comes to writing travel, you can have just your basic travel log. You could have something with a great plot. And there's that whole value and dimension of of creating a wonderful sense of place. Yeah. The books that I chose, especially the fiction that I chose, is all books that have that there-ness, that when you read those books, you feel like you know what that place is. Um, Hong Kong is a common place that I understand because of the books that I've read. You know, the handover from the British back to the Chinese, what that period was like. How it felt. How it felt. Vietnam, another... Oh, can you imagine? Yes. The sense of, more than the sense of place, the sense of 
time in place or, or something yes. like that. Yeah, and I was struck when I was writing the book by how whatever book I read, it was almost as though and decided or not to, or decided not to include it in the book. Really, geography is political. And when I call um, a section in Bookless to go Burma, I'm making a political statement. And that's something that I kind of knew that geography is political, but mm. I, it didn't come home to me until I started reading all the books that I would then include mm. in the Spain section. It's very hard to find a book about Spain written since 1936 that does not refer in some way to the scars of the Spanish Civil War. Right. And with Chile, there's a wonderful book by Sarah Wheeler called Travels in a Thin Country. And that is the one book about Chile that I've read ever that doesn't talk about Pinochet. You know, I could see you hanging out in some sort of evening social scene with a bunch of really experienced world travelers, and nobody would even know that you you, you got all your travel through books. Now, right. A minute ago, you said when you chose to use the word Burma, it yes. was a political statement. Right. Of course, instead of Myanmar, which might right. be more politically correct. Yes. Why? What, what statement were you making? I, I was making a statement... Well, because it's a military junta who's running Myanmar. So um, mm-hmm. I think that that is... Um, oh, so it's more in uh, solidarity with the people to say I, Burma? I think if for for me, it's both in solidarity with the authors whose books I'm talking about okay. and um, recommending. Um, there's a wonderful writer named Emma Larkin who wrote Going After George Orwell in Burma, which is both a biography of the country and a biography of the writer, which is just wonderful. Our guest right now on Travel with Rick Steves is Nancy Pearl. She's a librarian at large with the King County Library System in Seattle, and you've probably followed her recommendations on other public radio shows over the years. Her latest book is called Bookless to Go, recommended reading for travelers, vagabonds, and dreamers. Nancy, when you're talking about a sense of place and how critical that is really for the the best travel experience from a book... Do you find that's easier to get in a fiction book or a nonfiction book? I think that almost entirely depends on the writer. I think that there's some wonderful nonfiction where you feel as though you're there. Um, I think Paul Theroux's um, The Great Railway Bazaar was one of those books, The Old Patagonian Express. The book of his, though, that gave me the best sense of Africa, I think, is called Dark Star Safari. Mm where he goes back to Africa, where he had been in the Peace Corps and then taught at the University of Uganda. and um, I just talked to him about that book. Oh, you did? And it was fascinating, and he made such a strong point. You don't fly from capital to capital. you got to go overland across the borders and get out into the bush. Yes. And he was traveling like some backpacking student all across Africa. And he went there for his 60th birthday, so he was not a kid. Now, that is cool. Yes. (laughs) And that book is so... It's just so beautifully written. I kept writing down. I included several quotes from it because I couldn't. Dark Star Safari. Dark Star Safari. Nancy, I was just thinking we always talk about sense of place, but you've also got sense of time. And you've got contemporary writers like Paul Theroux. And then we've got writers from centuries past that take us to a place and to a time. Yes. Who does that well? Oh, um, Ibn Buttada or Batuta, right. um, I think, does that. And there's a wonderful book in Bookless to Go. It's called Travels with a Tangerine because he was from Tangiers. And he followed um, the first half of Ibn Battuta's travels. Somebody took me to his home. There's a tiny little mosque and museum for him in Tangier. Yes. Oh, really? Just last year. And it was a big deal for that Arab part of the world or Islam. And I hadn't heard of this man. Oh, see? See, I need to be exposed. I need to do a little traveling. (laughs) I need need to do some reader's advisory work with you. (laughs) Okay, we'll have to meet about that. Now, you say, in your book, you say, reading saved your life. How so? It's about your childhood. Yeah, you know, I grew up in a family that was not a particularly um, safe place to be for me. And so I spent all my time at my branch library in Detroit, Michigan. And it was those librarians who really were my first travel guides who opened up the world for me, who showed me what was available outside my very narrow world. Isn't that beautiful? Don't you ever wonder how gratified they would be to see what you're doing now with your work? That's one of the things that I most wish, is that they would know that and would know how how grateful I am to them. 
whether it's a piano teacher or a history teacher or a Sunday school teacher or a librarian, people right. plant these little seeds, rescue kids from difficult home lives. Yes. And then for the rest of their lives, they're benefiting from that. Yes. I'm speaking with Nancy Pearl. Her new book is Book Less to Go. You know, I may have a well-worn passport cluttered with all sorts of smudgy stamps, but I think you've likely traveled as much as anyone. I know this has been quite an inspirational talk. Take me to a favorite place that you feel like you've been to, but it was only with the help of a book. Chile. Sarah Wheeler's Travels in a Thin Country. Because she is such an adventurous traveler and that because she stays at youth hostels and if somebody says, oh, let's go off into the interior, she'll go with them. And because she goes from north to south, and she's a fabulous writer. And her book about Chile, her book about Antarctica, and her forthcoming book about the Arctic are just all wonderful. Nancy Pearl, Book Less to Go, thank you for all the, the travel tips. Thank you. They call me a dreamer. Well, maybe I am. But I know that I'm burning to see Those faraway places Where the strange sound of names Calling Calling Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks for technical help today to our colleagues at KUOW Seattle and BBC in London. Our theme music is by Jerry Frank. We've arranged many of the interviews from past editions of the show by the countries we discuss. They're available as podcasts and apps that you can download to your portable player or smartphone. Look for the Rick Steves Audio Europe links on the front page of our website at ricksteves.com. And join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Each year, Rick Steves tour guides take free-spirited travelers on escorted tours through England, Scotland, Ireland, and beyond, one small group at a time. This year, we're featuring tours of the best of Ireland, the best of Scotland, the best of England, and London. For a free catalog and Rick's Tour Experience DVD, Visit the tour pages at ricksteves.com.